Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Right now it's just turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, history and present day of Haiti with Beverly Bell, who's the coordinator of Other Worlds. The significance of May 24, East Timor. We're speaking with Peter Murphy from the Search Foundation. The death of a Venezuelan feminist revolutionary, Nora Castaneda, with Coral Winter. But first, here he is back again, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when one of the ABC's stable of left-wing presenters, well, she must be, because uh, Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect giant mind columnist says they're all far, far, far left at the ABC and to Padean Communications Kremlin, which should be privatised and handed over to a balanced objective owner like, well, like Lord Rupert himself. Anyway, one of those out-of-control left-wing presenters, Amanda Millstone, former Minister for Sundry Things in the Caring Business Class Party government, called for politics and by inference industrial relations to move to the sensible centre. Caring employers make the same claim when they inform us industrial relations has swung far too far in favour of the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. So we, we asked Amanda to steer us to the sensible centre. Uh, take that road on the right over there, keep going right, and the first intersection, turn right, then keep going. Uh, how far? Well, as I said, just keep going. Uh, eventually you'll see me and then you'll know you've reached the sensible centre. I've been travelling for ages, Amanda. How much further? Just keep going. Obviously, if there's a sensible centre, there must be a non-sensible centre. Non-sensible centre, idiot, moronic left, commie, greenie, long-haired, wooden work in an iron, untrue but wasy, crap merchants. That's a harsh term, Amanda. Everyone uses commie. How much further? Keep going. On which the sensible centre international monetary profits fund, big supremo Christine Lagarde, the wealthy, following another failed dialogue with the Greek government, said the crisis could only be solved if there is a meaningful dialogue. A meaning that they agree with us. Our old mate Illa Papa, Frugger the First, got lost on the road to the sensible centre and said climate change is not crap. Further, it's anthropogenic as opposed presumably to deific. Those who know Christian evangelism must rule the world were aghast that Illa Papa was bringing politics into religion or the wrong sort of religion into the wrong sort of politics or, or whatever. Expressed on their behalf by a follower of the old Illa Papa's faith, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo contender, Jeb Bash the workers of the hereditary big supremo family, brother of that mission accomplished, reads comics upside down more. I don't get economic policy from my faith, from the Pope, Jeb sputtered. And I kind of wished he'd explained what that had to do with climate change, but I think Jeb was saying religion has no role in politics other than resorting to it when it suits. I get my economic policy from the fact that I'm filthy rich, my friends are filthy rich, and my policy is to keep it that way. 
and where non-USA people, aliens in other words, stand between the USA and that filthy rich wealth my foreign policy is, we must take steps to eliminate those anti-democratic aliens who resent liberty, freedom and democracy. Another would-be U.S. of candidate said there were many, many, many more important issues facing the planet than climate change. Just a pity he didn't show us his list, or, or maybe not. Probably for the better, we've got to watch our blood pressure. Back here, Tiny's faith was tested as Illa Papa declared that that which Tiny knows is utter crap was not utter crap. Uh, do you still believe the old Illa Papa is infallible, Tiny? He was not speaking infallibly, very definitely not. But Ella Papa was saying we have a right to life, a right to life, and he is now restating the obvious corollary that we have a right to death. A right to death, although that is up to God, to the dear baby Jesus. We do not have a right to death by our own hand. Uh, which we would by doing nothing about climate change. That is more utter crap. The so-called climate change debate is full of utter crap. Full of utter crap. Beautiful, beautiful coal will drag the world out of poverty, even if the unresourceful budgers have to be dragged screaming. Not full of utter crap, back in the heartland of the greatest little economic order of them all, the world's most peaceful state, the bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, spoke for all peace-loving people. Nobody should hear that kind of announcement and not be concerned about what the implications are. U.S. of Secretary for World State John Kerrying for All couldn't believe such warmongering by evil Russia. Uh, what, John, evil Russia has whacked all these tanks and heavy weapons in the U.S. of border, pointed smack bang at the U.S. of in Canada and evil Cuba and on the Pacific and Atlantic coastlines? Worse, evil Russia announced it would boost its nuclear defences for no stronger reason than the U.S. of has whacked all these tanks and heavy weapons on Russia's border as a NATO peace initiative with peaceful intent. And the U.S has every right to protect peace wherever we see peace threatened. This saber-rattling reveals beyond doubt their warmongering aims when the U.S. of weapons and peace-loving train killers aimed at them pose no threat to anyone who loves peace. If they maintain this aggressive stance, we may have to preserve peace as we have preserved peace so very, very often. Send in the Marines. Mm, there, there could be a Tom Lira song in there somewhere. Jeb and John's desire for ensuring world peace U.S. of style shows the enormous ideological gap on foreign policy between the cosmic choices the U.S. of people have. On songs, we love those songs telling us how much we're saving by paying the exorbitant prices at our great supermarket, Duopoly. And after Woolworths Less Than It Was, big supremo Grant Nobrain announced his departure, the Grant bit being the seven milli is estimated to walk off with, imagine what he'd get if he hadn't seen the profits fall. Reports said he would take up a position with a non-profit organisation, and I thought, well, he certainly had plenty of practice. Although that falling profit will settle at $2.15 So don't feel too sorry for them, listener. 
but feeling sorry for motorists forced onto public transport Thursday when a small leak occurred from a fire hydrant near the Punt Road, Turak Road corner, forcing Vic Roads to close all roads across Victoria. It's a necessary precaution to ensure the safety of all road travellers, Vic Road spokesperson James Moore Freeways explained. In the real world, the My Word They're Smart Award to the privatised public transport system, which created traffic chaos by lowering the boom gates at level crossings because the trains weren't running. <laughs> Their explanation would certainly be interesting. Not interesting, the explanations coming from Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition, because he finds it impossible to ever sound interesting, like, for the working people to whom I have devoted my life. Did you get that? I have devoted my life to working people. Wonder why he's been stressing that all week. After all, we know the AWU has always been a model for solidarity forever. Workers of the world unite. Good, responsible, non-evil union bosses. Well, not bosses, because that's a pejorative when applied to unions. Union responsible officials. But unlike little Billy, there are evil union bosses. This evil union payout to respectable, caring employer grow riches con profits because the evil construction union heinously suggested there were the odd safety problems on grow riches sites, as if. And the justice of the justice system saw the union pay trillions for suggesting there were safety problems and grow riches itself slapped over the wrist for killing three young people on one of its sites. And justice ensures the massive penalty on the evil unions for raising safety concerns is far, far greater than the pocket money penalties when those safety problems kill and injure workers. After all, crippling employers, like accidents kill and cripple workers, would cost jobs. And, and that's the whole raison d'etre of caring employers. Just to show how evil these workers are, the irresponsible union suggested the law should include a charge of industrial manslaughter under which caring employers like the Grillo, the workers' family, could... Sit down, listener. This is class war where there should not be class war. Caring employers like the Grillo, the workers' family, could land in jail just for killing a few expendable workers. Thank goodness evil unions have no say in the law. And finally, poor great caring employer bore all unions whose untested attacks on the evil construction union at the Get the Evil Construction Union Royal Kanga Mission have been taken for granted by the media, well not by this media but other media, and by the Kanga Mission and its hanging judge and crown prosecutor, is suing the union and the union refused a most reasonable request to hand over documents including the mobile phone details of several of officials and the employment conditions of an organiser, arguing this would hand evidence to the other party. So Boral Unions took the evil union to the High Court where their honours ruled sensibly the union had to give Boral Unions a free kick. And if it didn't hand its private information to the caring employer, it would be in contempt of court. The evil construction union must have just so much respect for the law, mustn't it? Good afternoon. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 855 AM. 
Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing, and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. And just before that message, you were listening to Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. And as I tell you each week, you can hear more of Mr Healy at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, 9 till 10 on City Limits. I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. I don't think I could handle it. I would probably go mad, you know what I mean? I would go mad. 3CR and Music Matters Radiothon Film Fundraiser is the new documentary study of the great British soul queen, Amy Winehouse. Bring your friends along to the Kino Cinema at 45 Collins Street in the city on Thursday the 2nd of July at 6.30pm. Tickets are $20 concession and $25 wage. Buy your tickets online at 3cr.org.au or at the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or phone Loretta during business hours on 9419 8377. Amy, Thursday the 2nd of July at Kino Cinema in the city. Help 3CR and Music Matters reach our radiothon target so that we can activate the airwaves. Beverly Bell is an Associate Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and coordinates the economic and social justice group Other Worlds and spoke on the program recently about Honduras and the awarding of the Goldman Environmental Prize to an Indigenous human rights activist, Berta Cacares. Today, Beverly's focus is Haiti, a country she has worked in for many years with grassroots activists. The phone line to California could have been better, but I'm afraid that's the luck of the draw. I began by saying that it's not possible to talk about present-day Haiti without an understanding of the history of the country and its people. That's right. Can you talk about that history okay. and the, the slavery and the, the revolution of the slaves? Slave rebellion actually began in the 1750s. There was underground organising conducted by people, many of whom were directly from Africa. Most of them were first generation. They came from different countries, and so they had problems of communicating and organizing, but some of the enslaved people had been warriors and even military leaders back home. That really allowed the Haitians to start up a tremendously strategic war, which won in 1804 and gave birth to the first black independent republic in the whole world, which actually goes to explain a lot of things. Haitians will say they are still being punished today for having so challenged the rule, in fact, 60 years even before the U.S. freed its own enslaved people. But at the same time, in 1804, they also created the second independent country, in the hemisphere, also very politically noteworthy, the only country in world history to this day that has ever been born out of a slave rebellion. The main two issues, I would say, 
to them was one, learn, and that, that forms what we will go on to speak of, which is that the struggle for land now has gone on for several hundred years. The second main issue was right of citizenhood. I'm sure that's not the term that they would have used, but it was a determination to be included in the affairs of the nation. So we can say that Haitians won their, their war, but they have still not actually become liberated. Because to this day, the vast majority, who is tremendously poor, illiterate, and does not speak French, which is still a language that most of the affairs of the state and the church are conducted in, although that has shifted quite a bit, are really excluded both from land and from any form of participatory democracy. So those struggles have been waged off and on with different degrees of success. One step forward, one step back, or two steps back. They have never gotten very far. But one extraordinary thing about Haiti is that neither have they given up. They continue to be so militant to this day. And a common expression in Haiti is, resistance is in my gut. I was born with it. People say things to you like, we are a rebellious people. And indeed they are. Their tenacity and their willingness to fight for what they believe and what they know to be theirs is extraordinary. When did you first go to Haiti? I first went to Haiti when I was 15 years old. I went down with a uh, youth mission group that my parents, who are evangelical Christians, sent me down on. And I ended up hating the white, very colonialist mission, really, with whom we were working but I ended up meeting some pregnant women and their children and their families, and I would spend my evenings with them, and I was just amazed by their courage and their tenacity. And also I saw starvation for the first time, and so close to the land of plenty, which is the United States, where I had come from, this just didn't make any sense to me. So I didn't know how to name at the age of 15 that there was something very, very wrong structurally, I sensed it and have been lucky enough to continue working with Haiti well. I mean, I went on to finish high school, of course, but basically from the year I finished high school until today, so that's 35 years, I guess. Talk about some of the work that you've been doing there and and, and some of the people that you have worked with over those years. Who I have met have been the most extraordinary visionaries and strategists and activists. The organization that I run, a small women's cooperative called Other World, works with black youth movements. So in this present iteration, as well as with other organizations, uh, going back to just supporting the fight against Duvalier, the tyrant who fled Haiti in 1986, ending a 30-year father and son dictatorship, I have just seen people who are so organized and are so committed If you go to a party, if you go to a bar, if you're on the streets, people want to talk politics with you, and they want to tell you how messed up things are. They don't talk about music and football or what's on TV first off at all. Everything is political there. So we work with movements of organized grassroots people. I have over the years worked with democracy movements and human rights movements, peasant farmer movements, movements that are challenging the occupation by the U.N. today and who have challenged various forms of U.S. occupation in the past few decades. And, in fact, it's important to say that Haiti this year is celebrating 100 years since the first U.S. occupation by the Marines came in from 1915 to 1934. 
we work with women's movements, we work with, we have worked with really radical religious movements, liberation theology movements, who actually were at the forefront of bringing down the dictatorship. Patients are very, very organized across sectors, and regardless of where they live, and it's just an amazing thing to behold. And even though, yes, Katie is big win, of course, the poverty is just vicious. It's just such violence. It's, no people should have to live with that kind of poverty and suffering. And yet, as I said, they just refuse to quit. And they're just so full of uh, courage and tenacity and faith. It's really been a tremendous gift for me to get to work with these folks. When you say the UN occupation, you're talking about the period since the 10 earthquake. Can you talk about that time? Actually, it goes back to 2004. The UN began its occupation in 2004, and at a moment of political upheaval, they call it a peacekeeping mission, but it was nothing of the sort. They used the earthquake of January 2010 to increase the numbers quite a bit. It's been up to above 20,000 people. It went down after the earthquake. I'm not sure of the current numbers now, but I believe at least 10,000 soldiers are on the ground, involved often in horrible human rights violations. There are stories of raping girls, raping boys. Listeners may know that they are the ones who actually dumped the raw uh, sewage into a river which brought cholera. The last thing that Haiti needed, my gosh. One more thing was cholera, which has spread across these camps where almost 200,000 people are still living today, now five years after the earthquake, and, and shredded bits of plastic. Cholera has killed thousands of people and sickened many more. I don't have the exact figures on me, but we can thank the UN. The cholera was traced directly to a group of soldiers that are from Nepal. They have refused to take responsibility. There was actually a class action lawsuit brought against the UN, but Ban Ki-moon coined immunity and threw the case out. And also there have been many claims brought for human rights violations and sexual violence and other kinds of violence against these troops. And those claims have not gone forward either. So the Haitian people are very determined to run their own country but uh, they're unable to do so with the UN in full-fledged occupation. You maintain that the disaster of the earthquake was not a natural disaster, but a human disaster. Can you expand on that? The earthquake itself was natural, but the level of disaster that resulted was not. So the level of disaster involved anywhere from 200 to 300,000 people being killed, and it involved the destruction of just tremendous, tremendous, tremendous amounts of infrastructure and buildings in the country. 4,000 people are now amputees, just involved so much pain and suffering. But you can actually, Jen, draw a straight line back from what happened at the earthquake the policies of the International Monetary Fund in Haiti in the 1980s and 1990s. That might sound crazy, but I can tell you how it happened. The vast number of people who died, the vast majority, were those who died when their houses crumbled and smashed down upon them. Most of these houses were built with very, very substandard materials, often 
concrete that contained an inadequate amount of cement because cement is fairly expensive relative to stone. Well, who was living in these houses and why were they living in houses that were perched on places where nobody should live, like at the bottom of ravines and on the side of mountains? The reason was that when the IMF came in in the 80s and 90s and imposed two standby agreements, they forced the Haitian government to drop the tariff, that is the tax on imports of basic goods, to a very, very low figure. Rice, for example, went down to something like 1 or 2 percent. It dropped by about 10 times. I'm sorry, the tax on importing rice from the U.S. almost overnight. Hundreds of thousands of farmers went out of business. They were no longer able to sustain their livelihood, but they could not survive in the countryside, so they fled to the capital city, Port-au-Prince, which is the only very significant urban center in the country, and they went on to work in sweatshop factories or to work as shoe shiners on the street, desperately poor, and they had no money to pay for adequate housing. So they lived in the houses then that were the, were the ones that collapsed in huge numbers and killed people. This was one of the 10 disasters in the world with the highest level of mortality. And there are other factors, too, where we can show the U.S. and the World Bank and the IMF as being directly responsible. But I think that the story that I just told about the housing gives a good indicator of why this was an unnatural disaster. We remember the billions of dollars that were promised in aid. What happened to that? Well, that's a fine question. Today, just glanced at a report that has been done by a very reputable investigative journalism group in the U.S., ProPublica, they found that for all of the money that the Red Cross gave for housing after the earthquake, I don't want to cite a figure because I don't know, but it was many, many, many millions, only six houses resulted. So where did this money go? Well, a lot of people around the world immediately said, oh, it must be corruption. There is really a tremendous amount of classism and racism that assumes that low-income countries, especially brown and black ones, are just rife with corruption, which Haiti is, of course, but so is to the international aid system and the U.S. government. And so, in fact, the Haitian government got less than 1%, one U.S. penny, every dollar that was sent to Haiti. There were more than $11 billion pledged. First thing to say is that most of that money never went down. That's very common after a disaster that will grandstand in the U.S. government certainly did um, made, you know, big statements about how generous our nation was, etc. But in fact, most of that money never materialized. But of that money that did, as I said, less than 1% went to the Haitian government. A lot of it never left the U.S., which was the largest source of funding, and went to Washington, D.C., to what we call Beltway Bandits. That is, those contractors who get enormous and often very crooked contracts. A lot of them funneled through uh, friends of Bill and Hillary Clinton. And I just should mention here that Bill Clinton is the special envoy to the U.N. for Haiti. That says a lot. And his wife, actually, when she was Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, is the one who was responsible for Haiti primarily. Um, she was the, the, the main foreign policy person at a high level involved in Haiti. We saw them and their buddies uh, step up and get quite a few contracts. There was just horrible mismanagement. There were a lot of political
medical deals that were cut, and then a lot more of the aid went to farmers, again, many of them from the state of Arkansas, where Bill Clinton is from, uh, and a lot of these are farmers who had benefited from their relationship with him, had gotten U.S. government contracts when Bill Clinton was president, and so a lot of the aid went to U.S. farmers to send down rice that, in fact, made people hungrier. It was good in the very short term, but the rural areas were largely not impacted, and so rice farmers were still growing rice. And what they told me, many rice farmers with whom I visited, they were not able to sell their rice anymore because they could not compete with the free rice that was sent down by the U.S. So I'm sorry to say that most of the aid that was sent to Haiti, well, it either didn't arrive or if it did, it did very little good. What we found was very careful studies. I was living in Haiti for several years after the earthquake. I was deeply involved. What we found was that the money that really made a difference were small donations that went to Haitian organizations, Haitian community-run organizations, to work in their own communities according to their own desires. And that is certainly a model that should serve what's happening now with Paul and uh, future disasters to come. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Beverly Bell, who is an Associate Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and coordinates the Economic and Social Justice Group Other Worlds in California. Talk about Monsanto and their seeds. Monsanto is one of the corporations that really got great gain out of the earthquake. One contractor, in he got a, a contract from the U.S. government called the Haitian earthquake the Super Bowl of disasters. If your listeners are all football fans, um, I am not, but football in the U.S., the Super Bowl is the giant spectacle, but also it's an enormous money shark feeding frenzy for many people. And so but Monsanto and other agribusiness really took advantage of this. I was able to uncover secret emails between Monsanto and the Haitian government in which Monsanto created this Trojan horse and offered to give seeds for free for the first year to peasant farmers. Well, the seeds were GMO seeds and they were hybrid seeds, and so what that meant was that they were not going to reproduce the same year in a way that's identical to the first yield, which is what farmers depend on the second and subsequent years, the farmers could not just save their seeds and regrow, they would have to go back and buy these Monsanto seeds. And so the seed saving that is the basis of modern day or of, of agriculture throughout history, which is what um, peasant farmers in Haiti and around the world do, would have been put out of business. And I don't we have not been able to ascertain how much actually how many did lose their business because of Monsanto. But it was this, again, disaster capitalism that Monsanto took advantage of. Um, I leaked documents while I wrote about it and got the documents on the emails back to the Haitian peasant movement. And they were just disgusted and called this the shot heard around the world. And they rounded up whatever Monsanto seats they could find, had a 10-mile march from one big peasant area into a local town where they burned Monsanto seeds. I'm happy to say 
that there were solidarity actions all over the world of people burning Monsanto seeds and taking other symbolic action in solidarity with Haitians, but also because agriculture, of course, all over the world has been damaged by Monsanto. So that's just one disgusting example I could give you. Many, many examples of how disaster, like poverty, is big business, and how so many people have really made a tremendous fortune off of Haitian suffering. How is agriculture now in Haiti? Were they organic before? Yes, this is a remarkable phenomenon. In Haiti, as in Cuba, people have never had the ability to buy fertilizers. They simply can't afford it. Agriculture in Haiti is pretty much 100% organic. And uh, farmers still are growing, but it's very, very difficult for them. They do not get support from the government. So they have to contest with all sorts of environmental problems like deforestation, which has led to soil erosion, desertification. Um, Haiti's environment is just in a disastrous state. They don't get support from agronomists to know, for example, why this or that crop is failing. It's very, very hard for them. The poorest sector in the country and, ironically, horribly, the hungriest sector in the country, most Farmer families earn under 200 U.S. dollars a year. The economic engine that Haitians are calling for and have been calling for to redevelop their country, certainly right after the earthquake, but going far back beyond that, is food sovereignty, which goes further than food security because you can be food secure but just be dependent on, you know, handouts. That's no good. So what Haitians are interested in, along with many others around the world, is the sovereignty, which is the ability of a people to grow its own food for its own consumption in a way that honors its own culture. So that means agroecological farming. That means revision of trade rules to reverse what we spoke about before with the IMS death policies so that Haitian agriculture is protected it means more support from the government. It means land reform, all of which are very threatened, which we can talk about in a minute, the land grabs that are really harming the chances for food sovereignty. But they, they remain very committed to this political program and political demand. What are the people themselves doing to get all those people out of the living conditions they're living in now and have been for the last five years living under plastic sheets? What's the way forward? The way forward is political will to get a solution for them. My organization actually led a several-year international campaign called Under Tents that was trying to force a political solution because, as we stated in the example of the Red Cross, which up until today has only actually built six houses. I know it seems incredible, but I, I believe it. In the country, it's not a matter of church groups you know, flying in from Australia or the U.S. and building houses. Really, there needs to be a systemic solution. But the problem is, for that to happen, the Haitian government would need to address land, in this case, urban land, and it would need to declare eminent domain, which is guaranteed in the Constitution, and turn the land over from either the state or the church, the Catholic Church, or from the wealthy to the good of these people who are still suffering tremendously. But the problem is this government, this 
doesn't care one whit about the poor, and they are not willing to alienate their friends among the wealthy in order to find a solution and give people secure homes where women will not be as vulnerable to rape, people will not be as vulnerable to cholera, and they can resume a life with, with some dignity and security. So who are the people involved in the, the fight back against all that's been happening to them? You're saying there's actually a dictatorship in Haiti now? Actually, a dictatorship, Jen. It's amazing. People have just not noticed. But the way this is arisen is that in Haiti, the full House and Senate of the Parliament turns over every three years. And the way that that happens is that there are elections according to the Constitution, each year in which one-third of the House and Senate, their seats lapse, and then there is an election for a new third of that body to be elected or re-elected. But since he came to power, largely, I would like to point out, by manipulation from the U.S. government and the Organization of American States, Mataly has never held one election. So as of January of this year, there is no more legislature. Literally, there are, is not one member sitting in the parliament. And so he rules by presidential decree. And the same thing has happened locally, is that the local elections have also not been held. And so when a seat lapses, Matali has just appointed someone. And often those people work in that sort of little boy system that we see, that we have seen in Haiti for so long, sort of a very corrupt system of rural where the person appointed by Malpeli often works hand-in-hand with the large landowners who are enabled, in this case, to then steal land from the peasants. So the fact that there is no legitimate government is actually an advantage to those who are really not interested in the rule of law and is an advantage to those who really want to use the opportunity of this moment to continue this disaster capitalism and to just continue to plunder the country. As for Aristide, he is in the country. He returned after the earthquake at the same time that uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier, the former dictator, did. Aristide is running his personal foundation. He is very involved behind the scenes in his party, which is called the Family Lavalas, the Lavalas family, but he does not leave his house. And when he needs to make a statement, it is to his wife, Mildred Aristide. So he is not, he's a sort of a shadowy character. You don't see or hear from him. And he is not eligible to be president again. He's already served his two terms, even though they were both cut short by U.S.-backed coup d'etat. Is tourism now a big issue in Haiti? the impact of tourism? Tourism is planned in Haiti. It's not up and running yet, but there are plans for mega-tourism. And I'm so glad that you've asked this, Jan, because this touches on what is the largest issue going on in Haiti right now besides the theft of elected democracy, and that is land grabs. Based on what I just said, that there really isn't a rule of law, transnational capital has just flooded the country. And there are plans for mega-development for tourism. There are dozens of mining contracts that were illegally granted. There is the possibility of petroleum. There are wharves being built 
to move merchandise. There are airports being built or planned to move people. There is agribusiness for international export, like Haiti has extra food to export. So, for instance, Dole Bananas is now in Haiti. And then there's just plain old theft by the oligarchy in a time-honored tradition. One good thing is that because of the, the political chaos in the country, there has not been a way for would-be exploiters and investors to secure land rights. And that has caused fear and from some people stopping them from going forward because they certainly don't want to start a project and then find out that they don't have secure land. But a lot of it is moving forward. It is happening on land that is peasant land. So, for example, in the case of tourism, there is one island called Ilavash, Tau Island, that was destined to become a very large tourist project. The Haitian government uh, had invested in it. The president and the former prime minister were personally quite involved and personally got kickbacks of several million dollars. The Haitian government, incredibly, now has 6% of its budget dedicated to try and boost tourism. I don't know how this compares to what they're giving for support for agriculture, health, and education, but I'll bet you that it is more than they are spending in any of those fields that people need to survive. So these land grabs are very, very frightening. They will render more peasants homeless and pushed into the city, just as we talked about happened in the in earlier decades. They will also create more volatile housing or uh, unsafe housing, more economic precarity, more loss of food being grown um, to the nation. Oh, it is not you know, never reach one more problem and what they keep coming. So Haitians used to lament the fact that they were so isolated in the world, and now I bet a lot of them would wish that they could return to that state when at least they didn't have foreign corporations coming in and trying to take their gold and, and build free trade zones. Oh, I failed to mention between 30 and 40 free trade zones on that land, which involve not just land for the factories, but the rivers to service the factories, which are diverted from agricultural land more land for housing, and it's not like a big depressant here. It's grim. It's rough. People are organizing and are trying to fight back, and we are working with them at my organization, and there are some others who are engaged, and we're trying to launch an international campaign. I'd love to come back in some months, Jen, and speak with you more about that. But right now, folks are just beginning to organize themselves and see how to protect their lands and their livelihood. Are they facing repression from the police? Yes, indeed, there has been. In this one case of this island, Cal Island, there was a group called the Peasant Collective of Ilabash, for short, and it is the first group of frontline communities that has organized the fight back against the investment and the extraction. The response was to kill the president of the group. He was off in a very, very bizarre motorcycle accident. Then, after he ended up in the hospital, he wasn't killed right out, policemen went to the hospital and ransacked the hospital looking for him. They did not find him, but uh, it, it was pretty clearly an assassination. He died subsequently from his wounds. And then the vice president of that group was arrested and spent nine months in the National Penitentiary without charge or trial. 
And unfortunately, we see these two instances as an example, as a, as a forerunner of what may likely happen when other communities get organized because they risk threatening a lot of profit, very, very large profit from people who really couldn't care less about peasant farmers and their land rights. What's the position of women in Haiti as general rule? It has not been good. I will say that uh, the organizing and the mobilizing that has happened really since 1986 when Jean-Claude Duvalier left, the sector that has made the most gains is women. They are still tremendously poor and repressed and suffer a tremendous amount of violence, and yet their status in the country and the voices that they have uh, been able to gain their political participation, their social visibility has changed quite a bit. So there is organizing from the middle class that call themselves feminists and from the poorer classes of workers and market women, peasant farmers, who just refer to them as organizing as women. Um, And there is, in fact, tension between those two classes. But overall, it has really been quite something to see. Uh, I've worked a lot with women, well, since that time and before, women in Haiti, and there has been a lot of payoff from their consistently holding up the banner and saying this level of gender equity is not okay. Women in Haiti, they call themselves potomitans. Everybody says that women are the central pillar of society and that they deserve more rights. So they have gotten more social and political rights. They have not yet gotten more economic rights. There is still a long way to go, but they are very fierce and very strong and have done a very good job of pushing forward with their multiple agendas for rights both at the level of society and household and also the level of the state. Do you also campaign against the rest of that children? Yes is a tragedy that comes out of poverty, in which Haitian kids, some estimate about 300,000, are effectively enslaved. And it is not that parents don't love their children or make money off of peddling their children. It's not that at all. It's the reverse. What happens is that so many parents are so unbelievably poor. I mean, a poverty that is just difficult to imagine. Even if you lived in Haiti and saw it every day, it's difficult to grasp parents who cannot educate or feed their children or attend to them when they're sick often give the kids to maybe a cousin in the city or someone who they know who promised to take good care of their kids. And that not happen. Often the cross-doubled children, cross-doubled, by the way, being a term that means to stay with. So children who live in the homes end up working really like slaves, often very young kids, as young as four years old, work from before dawn until the end of the day. They are not educated. They sleep on the floor. They are not allowed to eat food off of tables. It's something really terrible, and there are some organizations that are working quite hard to change this, and there is a growing consciousness about the rights of children and why this system needs to end. But it's really a system that is, again, fueled by poverty and on parents, basket parents trying to find a way for their children to survive. So the solution, as with the solution in so many things in Haiti, so many of the problems we've been talking about, is for there to be greater economic justice and greater economic equity, for there to be government policies that effectively redistribute the gross, gross amount of concentration 
concentration of wealth among a few in the most unequal country in the Americas to find ways to create social programs and to do budgeting such that those at the very bottom have greater economic opportunity. What role does community radio play in what you've just been saying? Community radio is essential in Haiti to people being involved. This is a country that 30 years ago, 85% of the people were illiterate. And the dictator Jean-Claude Duvalier made a very, very telling statement. He said, you can't have democracy in a country where 85% of the people are illiterate. Well, just flip that statement, Jan. Keep 85% of the people illiterate, and you don't have to worry about democracy. So we know that information is key to people being able to organize. So because they still can't read, something like, I think, 56%, perhaps, adults, that is, um, are illiterate. And the only source of news that they have is through radio. So there have been some wonderful efforts to spread community radio, and it is really spreading. It has spread quite a bit, and it's just on Cal Island last month for the inauguration of a new community station there, which will be vital to their fighting back against this mega-tourism project that would, again, displace all of the people. It is often the only way that folks can get the information that they need to fight back effectively. So it has played a very, very strong role in political organizing. And that's Beverly Bell, the coordinator of Other Worlds, a human rights group centred in California, which works with grassroots organisations in many countries of the South. And it was interesting right at the end there to hear about how important community radio is in Haiti. And we all know how important community radio is here. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 Are your energy bills too high? Are you having trouble paying them or understanding what they mean? Tried to save money by changing your energy provider but found it all too complex? You can find help at the Victorian government's new energy info hub. The hub is a website that contains simple, useful information in several languages to make sure you make the best decisions about your energy use. Targeted information for ethnically diverse and disabled energy consumers is available at the Hub, as well as via a telephone and email advice service run by the Alternative Technology Association. If you're having trouble with your energy bills and want some advice, go to energyinfohub.org.au or contact the helpful staff at the Alternative Technology Association on 9631 5427 or by email at energy at ata.org.au A 3CR supporter May 20 is a significant day in the history of an independent East Timor 
Peter Murphy from the Search Foundation was in the country for the celebrations this year and when we spoke last week, I asked him first to explain the significance of that date, 20 May. May 20, 1974, so a very long time ago now, 41 years. The first three political parties were formed in Timor following the April Revolution in Portugal. There was a Social Democratic Association of Timor and the Timorese Democratic Union and another one called Apodeti were formed in that May. And May 20 was the time when the Social Democratic Association was set up and later that year it changed its name to Fretilin, the Revolutionary Front for the Independence of Timor-Leste. May 20 became the, the day when, in 2002, the United Nations transferred sovereignty from itself to uh, elected government of Timorese people. So the way Timorese think about it, they declared independence in November 1975, on November 20, 28, just prior to the Indonesian military massive invasion. Already there was an invasion coming through from the west. They really, really hurriedly declared independence and then less than 10 days later, Dili itself was occupied. They've always thought about reasserting their independence. 2002 wasn't the first time they had their independence. And then since then, May 20 has been the, the day for this uh, celebration of uh, the reassertion of their independence. What was the ceremony like this year? I can remember 2002, which was you know, a very, very emotional day, but I can also remember the, you know, the, the parade and uh, the situation in front of the government palace in 2002 with the new government standing there, all the ministers. It was, uh, everything was you know, relatively poorly prepared and done because the country had been so devastated at the end of 1999. But uh, this time it was a very, it had a feeling of a really prepared, almost slick, you know, but uh, really they, the, the military were very well drilled. They put on a great performance actually and the veterans in all of their traditional costumes were so brilliant, so uh, proud. So it was actually a really happy, proud day. And uh, for us to be there, uh, there's the non-Timorese, to be also included in this in a very warm, embracing way was really terrific. And I hear that you got an award? Yeah, I was one of these uh, people. I think there were 35 individuals or organisations getting awards, but about 22 turned up. Uh, actually in person and uh, there were four of us from the Search Foundation which were originally Communist Party of Australia people we received either the, the, the medal or the insignia of uh, Timor-Leste so yes it was a little bit for us a bit over the top you know you never do these campaigns thinking sometime future <laughs> this will happen but uh, because I think it was a recognition of uh, all of the different people who'd taken part in that struggle and uh was also asking us to stay closely engaged with Timor as it builds itself into a strong nation. That was really terrific thing for, for me to be involved in. You know, I really felt great. What were some of the highlights of the struggle, Peter? Uh, I think that highlights is not the right word, Jan. <laughs> Mostly lowlights, I think. Um, the, the really, really deep truth, though, is that the people of Timor, Timor-Leste, never accepted rule by Indonesia. They resisted what was really seen by 
all these so-called wise people as uh, impossible odds. That is that they should have just rolled over and, and, in 1975 and accepted the occupation and become Indonesian citizens and tried to live their lives. But they never, ever accepted that idea. It's still one of the poorest countries in the world and really in those times they were very poor people without any external resources actually and they succeeded because they stayed united and they never gave up. And uh, I think all around the world people who uh, didn't buy the conventional wisdom were inspired by them and uh, recognised the injustice and stood with them. So lots and lots of different people, not famous, not prominent necessarily, but who also never gave up, made the difference too. That's, I guess, the highlight. The low light is, you know, the series of really brutal massacres and uh, horrible repressions and mass starvations that took place from... 1975 through to 1999. You know, one of the ones that many people in the world know now is the November 1991 Santa Cruz massacre because it was filmed and the film was able to be smuggled out. There were American journalists who, who were involved in covering that and they were able to prove that US weapons were used to massacre those students and because of that, the United States government policy meant the cutting of military aid to Indonesia. This was a very, very significant turning point. But you can see it's hard to call it a highlight. But what about your highlights, Peter? I've got a photo here (laughs) of you at 3CR with Mandy King, the filmmaker, and here's Peter Murphy, a member Mm. of the clandestine radio group. Tell us about that. Uh, Well, see, I'm just a minor player (laughs) in the act. (laughs) But um, 1975, before the invasion, people from the Communist Party of Australia were able to make sure some radio transmitters were in Dili. Fretilin and the Palantil were able to take those radios into the mountains after December 7, 1975. And they were sending messages to Australia, being picked up by Radio Australia. So they would say, send a message to the Prime Minister of Australia or to the Secretary General of the United Nations. And Radio Australia was obliged to pass it on. But in, at the end of January 1976, the Prime Minister then was Malcolm Fraser and he ordered Radio Australia cease to do that. So then it was really vital that there be some kind of other connection. And uh, you need a licence to receive transmissions and to transmit, and uh, the Australian government wasn't going to give one. So in this situation, the external leadership of Fretilin, who were by then based in Mozambique, worked with the Communist Party of Australia to establish a clandestine radio station outside of Darwin in the bush. So it took a few months to set all that up. I was just a, a one little player in the team, but um, I, I did help with some of the logistics of that. Also, at some stages later, I took part in transmitting by telex machine the coded messages coming out of East Timor and sending them through to Maputo in Mozambique. You know, the, the few little bits of the mechanism, um, we all had to be very careful not to say anything on the telephone or you know, really exposed that operation to any more surveillance than it already was under because several, I think three times, the radios were seized by the Australian Federal Police. People were arrested. We had to replace those radios. It was only shut down, though, at the end of 1978 when the Indonesian military captured the radio at the Timor end, was able to manipulate the information for a short time. The major part of that operation ended. But another radio was smuggled into Timor a few years later, and uh, communication re-established. So, you know, it went on, but at a different tempo in the 1980s. And what's 
been the connection with the Search Foundation and the Timorese in later years? The Communist Party of Australia stopped operating in 1991 and the Search Foundation ended up sort of carrying through some of the basic ideas of the party from 1995, 94, 95. As the 90s proceeded after that Dili massacre, there was a lot more political tempo uh, among the Timorese to establish more and more national unity to demonstrate to the United Nations and also to various European governments, especially Portugal, that the Timorese were demonstrating deeply and strongly they didn't want the Indonesian rule. So there was a conference of Fretilin held in Australia in 1997 and the Search Foundation helped with some of the logistics for that, including communications into Timor. By then, we were able to have a telephone link to Fretilin people who were able to find some sort of open space. The Indonesian military didn't crush this type of thing. So we helped with that, and that was a very important meeting. Jose Ramasorda came to Sydney. Mari Alkatiri came. The people came from Africa for that. And uh, the connecting to the leaders in Timor itself was a, a, a new development. So that helped establish certain momentum which led to the formation of what became CNRT. By 1999, when the referendum was on, we were able to play a role along with many other Australians in making sure that information came out from, of Timor about the process for the referendum and then also some material aid, especially was sent from trade unions and others, and we were able to help provide information for that process. We stayed connected and I think we're very well aware that we're part of a really big grassroots movement of Australians to end that occupation and to stand up for the rights of the Timorese people. Let me say, first of all, there was the elation when the August 30, 99 referendum was carried so overwhelmingly that the people of Timor did not want integration into Indonesia. So, in a way, the vote was a no vote to integration. But immediately after that, the Indonesian military started a sort of scorched-earth policy of plundering and destroying everything in Timor-Leste. So, in that period, we also played a role in organising the very big protests which took place in Australia, many different sorts of protests, and then gathering clothing and uh, food to send to Timor as soon as it was possible to send. And then uh, in 2000, the first Fretilin conference happened in, in Timor itself since 1975. We were able to send people to that and also help you know, provide some simple uh, material to support, you know, like paper. <laughs> There was virtually nothing in Timor at that time. Yeah, so we've always done our best to stand by those people in Timor who've suffered a huge, huge trauma, but suffered it together to stand up for their rights. So actually it's a, it's a lesson in how harsh our world is, but also how brilliant people can be. Well, not long after that national ceremony, one of those influential people in East Timor died, but not someone that you looked up to. Can you explain? Uh, well, I think it's, all, it's always so complicated. As I just said, you know, Timor-Leste is a nation traumatised. So every family has had people killed. Many families have had people tortured. There's still many disappeared people. There's still bones being dug up. The leader of a, a political party formed in 2001, it's called the Democratic Party, named Fernando Lassama de Araujo, well, mostly known as La Sama. He died just, just on June 2, you know, so not long ago. 
by um, that stage he was a Minister for Education, President of his party, and he had been President of the Parliament in the past and so on. But uh, he is best seen, I think, as a traumatised person. His political role, in my mind, wasn't so great, but uh, what he did was, though, in the late 1980s, he helped form student component of the clandestine resistance in Timor, and they are the people who were there at the forefront of the Santa Cruz massacre in 1991. So many of those people were in his organisation were killed and tortured. He became alcoholic and a, a rather erratic figure, but all the same widely regarded for his contribution to the struggle. Yes, it's hard to know now what will happen in the politics of this. His party, the Democratic Party, one of the smaller parts of the coalition government, and there's elections due in 2017. So it's maybe better to sort of talk about the bigger context of politics now in Timor-Leste. In February this year, Shanana Gushmao, who was the Prime Minister, resigned. He told the President of the Republic that he couldn't nominate anybody from his own party to be the Prime Minister, and, and instead he nominated somebody from Fretilin. In February, a new government was formed in which Shanana is a minister, but not the prime minister. A guy called Rui Araujo, a doctor, is the prime minister. And there were three other Fretland figures who were in the, in the government as well. Formally, they're not representing Fretland. So Fretland as a party is not part of the government, but these guys as individuals are very significant figures. What seems to be happening is Shanana has shifted somehow his posture towards a more friendly relationship with Fretilin. And Fretilin itself, in 2013, had decided to not to uh, and continue with a sort of formal, open, oppositional role in the parliament when Shanana was the prime minister because it was a sort of um, necessary to stand up to some of the pressure coming from Shanana in the last five years, say, since the 2007 elections. But the country wasn't going anywhere. There was a sort of a paralysis and there was also a sort of tension that um, people were frightened, you know, that uh, the violence of 2006 could break out again. The shift to a, a more cooperative, uh, less confrontational uh, relationship was a bit controversial, I'm sure, but it seems to have been reciprocated by Shanana as well, or they both sort of had this idea in different ways at the same time. So there's actually a very interesting new political atmosphere in Timor-Leste. And uh, the death of Lasama might accelerate one of these sort of tendencies, which is that, say, in this new situation, the Democratic Party might not really hold together. And in the elections due in 2017, it's possible the Democratic Party won't, won't really figure in the new parliament even. I found, you know, besides the very heartwarming experience of being included in that May 20 ceremony, this visit to Timor-Leste showed me a new new situation developing with more hopeful for the country. Also, a, a period where I think Shanana Gushmao will try to establish his legacy. And the people, I, I, I can see this more clearly now, the people have never been able to understand why there was a conflict between Shanana Gushmao and Fretilin. They really, I think, are happy to see more of a convergence and the cooperation happening. And I think uh, it's a very hopeful future, I think, a more hopeful future for a very poor country, which is really still desperately trying to build itself out of a, what was really a year, year zero in the 2000. That's a fairly positive place to finish.
Yeah. And that, of course, is Peter Murphy. And congratulations for Peter winning his award for his wonderful work that he's continued right through the whole time for East Timor. When we hear about society and politics in Venezuela, we hear little about the struggles and achievements of women. So today we honour feminist revolutionary Nora Castasede, who died in May, an economist, university lecturer and much-loved revolutionary. Nora is renowned for her founding and presiding over Venezuela's internationally celebrated Women's Development Bank, Bank Mujer, since 2001. She was also one of the chief protagonists of the indigenous Venezuelan working-class women's movement, which emerged in the 1980s. Coral Winter, a member of Socialist Alliance, lived and worked in Venezuela for many years. I asked Coral about Nora's early years. Well, I know a little bit because she was interviewed by women from the um, Global Women's Strike Committee in England and the United States, and they printed a book which I managed to get in Venezuela when I was there about 2010. So she came from a very, very poor family. Her mother worked three or four jobs as a domestic servant and brought up six children. Nora was, I think, the second eldest girl. Her mother had only had an education up to third grade. They had different fathers, the children, but as normal in um, Venezuela, the fathers took very little interest in the children or none at all, and the mother was left to look after the children by herself and manage as best she could. So what was her education, early education? Nora? Well, the one thing that her mother was absolutely considered really, really highly important was that all the children should get an education. And so that's what she worked so hard for, for all the children to be educated. Although she'd left school, I think, at grade three and could hardly read or write or much later in life, Nora went to university and became professor of economics and was at the University of Central Venezuela for 30 years as a professor in economics. But it's a long way from being a child of a, a single poor mother to being a professor. How did she afford to send all those children to school and were there scholarships in those days? No, no, it, it was free at the main university, UCV, in Caracas um, in those early years. Which I suppose that would have been during the um, 50s and 60s. You could, it was free to go to university if you could pass the exams. That was all changed later on because the UCB became a centre of student radicalism and left politics, so they stopped that eventually in the 80s and 90s. But it was free. If you, if you had the you know, intelligence and past exams, you could go there. And because she would have lived in Caracas, it was able for her to attend it. So, but she married at the age of 18 to a, a, a man of Afro, Afro descent. She ended up having three boys and a girl. And she says that um, her mother-in-law was a very big influence as well in her development. But after, and um, he was a Marxist and um, she became a Marxist and joined um, the Socialist League. And she was, but she was always a committed activist. You know, even though she became a, an academic, she was always a committed activist. And um, she spent some years in Nicaragua, I don't know how long, for in the late 70s and the early 80s when they had the Sandinista Revolution in 1979 but eventually came back to Venezuela to try and build the women's movement. And her passion always was the position of women. Absolutely. She was totally...
committed to that issue of women's lives and um, how they could be changed by economics and how to stop poverty. Because 70% of the world, you know, the poverty in the world happens to women. So she was really committed to that cause uh, in every level uh, at all times. I'd imagine in Venezuela there might have been a few barriers for women organising. Yeah, there was. It was very, very difficult. But she was involved in organising some of the NGOs and she also created and managed to create a chair for women's studies at UCV while she was there. But this all changed in 1998 and she became also a friend of... um, President Chavez. What happened is she went to see him in prison when he was in prison in 1992. I think got to know him there. And she became a close advisor to him. And when he came out of prison in 94 and decided to run for president and join in with sort of the political party, she was opposed to that. She thought it wouldn't work. But she followed sort of um, supported his campaign and she campaigned really heavily amongst women's organisations and the grassroots organisations in Venezuela at that time to support his campaign. And out of that, one bit where I read was that she said, we shouldn't give up on being able to fight against the mass media and all the lies and deceits they tell us. That, you know, this campaign that Commandante Chavez um, waged and throughout the late 90s was possible because, you know, and, and won because of the massive grassroots community organisation that people got involved in. And so, um, yeah, she urged us to sort of not to give up on <laughs> on um, trying to be able to defeat the, the lies of the mass media, that we can do it. And she was also instrumental in getting women's voice into the new constitution under Chavez. Yeah, that was incredible, because the first thing he did was in 999 was to organise for an election of people who would be form the constitution constituent assembly and the first thing he did was to rewrite uh, a new constitution for the country which would set it on a whole new course and she campaigned outside the constituent assembly I think for three months and what they wanted was article 88 which gave a wage to women for their domestic work and um, bringing up children for reproductive work and and the unpaid labor in the house and that was part of it's the first time I think it's happened in the world that um, Section 88 in the Constitution is to give a living wage to all women who are bringing up children and work at home. I don't know whether it's actually been implemented yet because I think it got restricted to women who didn't have a visible support, but she really wanted it for all women, regardless of what their financial situation was, because she thought you know, that would give women independence and be able to choose and direct their own lives. And on top of that, the other thing she campaigned for, which is quite incredible, was that for every word which refers to a position in the um, parliament, that the masculine form of it be also written with the female form of it. So uh, it's the only constitution in the world which has both feminine and masculine forms. uh, It's clear in Spanish that it's, you know, the words are either, usually, they're always masculine and you never put the feminine form. It's not so obvious in English because the words can refer to both sexes, but in Spanish it's not. I think it's the only constitution with the words la presidenta, um, referring to the possibility of a woman president. So that was a just, that was absolutely amazing too, what she achieved with that. 
Can you talk about her work as an academic? Look, I don't know much about that work. I, I know she was a brilliant economist. What I do remember is that when I was there in um, uh, Venezuela, I turned on the radio one morning, it might have been about 2008 or 2009, and there she was, like every half hour in the morning program, she gave this economic history of each country in um, Latin America. And the one I listened to was, she gave this whole history of the economic development of El Salvador. And it was so clear and so brilliant that um, I think she obviously must have studied all these countries and knew what had happened to them. You know, she talked about how, you know, the coffee plantations and then they, the owners of these huge plantations in um, El Salvador shifted then into banking. But it was a Marxist analysis of all these events, all the things that had happened in the whole history, you know, of different countries in Latin America. So she obviously had a very deep knowledge of the economies of these countries. A highlight of her life was the Women's Bank, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, she was appointed by Comandante Chavez to head up the Van Mujer, it's called the Women's Development Bank. And this was an amazing thing she did. They were able to provide microcredits through another uh, another act of the parliament, with it, which was the microcredit bank, to any woman who wanted to set up any small business. She was absolutely committed to women getting out of poverty. So they were able to get a microcredit to set up a small business. I mean, they encouraged them to set up cooperatives, and they, in the end, had about... 50 representatives throughout the whole of the country and women could go to to their this representative in their in their city and put forward a proposal now the proposal would be controlled and headed by a woman but it would could include men as well but it had to be a woman who was responsible for it in the end and they set it up and so that they gave workshops and and it was amazing they made it so that it was owned and controlled by the clients and the users themselves of the bank, not the bureaucrats in um, Caracas. And so the first thing they would do was they hold a workshop saying, well, who are you? You know, we are women, but where do we come from? What do we represent? So she, she could talk about women who derived, you know, came from indigenous background or who were Afro-descendants or whatever mixture they were. So women who are always treated so badly in Venezuela or in the whole of Latin America as second-class citizens with no importance whatsoever gave them a feeling of solidarity and self-importance. And then they would go on to talk about projects. And one of the few things you realise is that there was one woman who said she couldn't work out why she never made a profit from sort of cooking and selling food. And when they went to the workshop, it was obvious that she didn't take into account the electricity she used to cook the food or the gas, and they didn't take into account their labour. You know, they had no sort of... They were just poor women with no education. They had no concept of factoring in those things so that, you know, you, you came out with the profit, of, you know, of the work you've done to um, make the, and sell food. So they would do very simple things like that, but it was all under very organised with strategic objects, you know, and with training of everybody in the whole situation so that also that 
you know, no bureaucrat in, um, in the Women's Bank could veto any project. And so this bank of Mulheru, it was absolutely so successful because also President Chavez had told her, we, I don't want to know how many microloans you make. I want to know how you've improved women's lives. And so that's what they based it on. But a really, really grassroots organisation which gave women the ownership and, and a way out of poverty, you know, just coming together, even just making like sort of sweets out of bananas or mangoes that would fall off the tree and just go to rot. They would... They came. They started doing those sort of small activities, and it was really highly successful. I brought um, a number of brigades to Venezuela and and took people around each or twice a year for the last few years. And we always made a point of um, having an interview with Banco with Ban Mujer, and that's where I met Nora um, Castaneda one time. Tell us about what you thought of her. Ah, oh, she was just this really. What do you recall? Humble woman. She was also of Negro descent. Her father had been a, a lawyer in um, one of the states, you know, a black lawyer, but, but um, obviously hadn't contributed to anything, as I said. But she was just very humble, very, you know, no ego, egotism about her at all. Very quiet, obviously very efficient and very determined and very committed. A, a really lovely, warm human being, you know, it's... It's just a, such a um, so it's so uh, sad and tra- in, not tragic, but so sad to realise that she's died because she contributed so much to Venezuela and and to the future women in that country. And, and to look at her, you think, oh, she's just a dumpy. You know how we have these stereotypes, just a dumpy little a woman. You know, from, <laughs> who would who would uh, no, you know, not. Just maybe from middle class background, because she just dressed normally. But no, she was totally, totally different. You can't judge by you know. I learn over and over again. You cannot judge by people's appearance. She was just so sweet and so focused and so. And, and apparently, like everybody throughout the whole of the country knew who Nora Castaneda was. So she would go and visit them all in the different projects all around the country. Everybody knew who she was, and you know, people would come to Caracas and. Um, they'd have meetings every three months to work out exactly what we're doing, and also to learn from the the um, people who were using the microcredits of what to do and where they were making mistakes and to go forward. Yeah, she was just a wonderful person. Has the bank expanded over those years? Oh, yeah, it has expanded. I'm not sure where they're at at the moment, but it's still going. I remember they had a visit by one of those, the, the, one of the men from India who'd set up those microcredits in India, but... And he thought their loans were too high, but I remember him her saying that. But but that was a mistake. You know, they they had decided on you know the minimum loan they would have to give to get anything running up in Venezuela would be have to be quite a bit of money. So yeah, so they made their own rules and worked out exactly what they had to do, knowing their situation. Was it replicated in other countries apart from that was Bangladesh, wasn't it? You were yeah, talking about. I don't know if it has been replicated in the rest of Latin America. That's a good question. Or anywhere I in the world. Heard of it. For women, particularly for women. No, I don't know if that's happened at all. But it was a wonderful example. You know, you know, it should be. It should be done in every third world country, what she achieved. She did travel widely outside of Latin America? Oh, no, not very much. There was this, as I said, the Global Women's Strike Group who met her in 2003, I think, in 
in Caracas and they invited her to speak. And so she went, first of all, in 2004 to the United States and toured all around the United States and was met, you know, with an incredible um, surprise and, and um, interest in what they were doing. And then she also went the next year, 2005, to Britain and Ireland and Spain as well. But that was on the invitation of women's groups. I don't think she um, travelled widely. I, I don't know of many um, trips outside of that and and talking about, you know, what they had achieved in Venezuela. And been, well, it was mainly done by grassroots women's organisations, any touring that was done. But I don't think she did a lot of travelling outside of Venezuela. But not that I know of. Have any of her children followed in her footsteps as an activist? I don't know about that, but she does talk about her her youngest daughter because when the youngest daughter was about four or five years of old, she came home from nursery saying that her hair was bad and <laughs> the, the, the teacher didn't like her and never picked her up because she was black and she had bad hair and she said, what do you mean bad hair? She said, because it's kinky, you know, and she talked about this as, you know, the way women of African descent are treated and were treated in Venezuela was just everything. But even worse were women who were an Indigenous background. She always fought very hard for the Indigenous women, women and men, because they were treated like um, pariahs. You know, they wouldn't even be allowed into a middle-class home to become a domestic servant. They were considered so low and, and so dirty and so at the bottom of the heap. But she always would um, um, bring into um, focus, you know, indigenous women and, and their plight, and, and to change all of that. And it's interesting in Venezuela because everybody is virtually a mixture of well European descent, but also indigenous and African, because of the slaves that were brought over to work in the chocolate, the cacao agricultural areas and, and growing chocolate. There's, you know, so there's a huge population of um, African descendants. And everybody's a mixture in Venezuela. It's quite unusual, quite different to Chile. She overcame a hell of a lot, though, didn't she? From poverty to being black to being a woman? Yes, absolutely, yes, yeah. But I think because of her ideology, she understood her position and understood what had to be done, and that gave her an enormous amount of confidence and drive and determination. She never stopped fighting for women of all colours and their plight and their position. How was her death marked in Venezuela? Oh, there was a wonderful statement by Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, saying, you know, she was an example to everybody, in all men and women in Venezuela, how to be a revolutionary and how to fight for the nation and said that she hadn't died, that she would always be remembered for you know, her, her work and what she had achieved. So it was a wonderful um, statement by him. I, a whole lot of ministers also made statements on their Twitter accounts <laughs> alluding to her, but, yeah, she was just an incredible woman, you know, one of my heroines. I feel really honoured to have met her. OK, Coral, I think that's a good place to finish. OK. And that was Coral Winter, who lived and worked in Venezuela for a number of years, and she was speaking about feminist revolutionary Nora Castellanos, who passed away in May. That's about all I have for the program at the moment. Jonathan will be here very soon, and I'm 
assured that we're going to have a meatless program. Is that right, Jonathan? Well, somewhat. Somewhat meatless. <laughs> okay, well, that's all for me for today. Bye for now.